I want to say welcome back, and uh, for those of you joining us for the first time, maybe here in person or online, I want to say uh, welcome as well. We hope that you'll fill out those connection cards and hit those connection buttons, because we want you to be a part of this family. We want to get to know you and help you to get to know us a little better, so please do that. Uh, for those of you who may not know me, I'm Pastor Dylan. I'm one of the uh, pastors here. We've just wrapped up our Christmas series, and today I'm going to be closing out our previous series called Simple Gospel with Romans chapter 14. Again, that's going to be Romans chapter 14. We spent a lot of time going through this series to talk about the central message of the New Testament and arguably the whole Bible called the gospel or the good news. And if you've missed any of it, don't worry, you can find these messages again by going to lolag.org, and under the drop-down of online church, you'll see past messages. You can listen to those anytime. You could also search Lowell Assembly of God on Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcast, Android device, whatever your flavor is, and you can find us there as well. Today, we get a look at what it means to love God by how you love others, and see that they are not mutually exclusive things. They are dependent upon one another. Uh, later in the New Testament, John the Apostle, who actually I was saved by reading his writings in John chapter 14, in one of his letters he says this, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he does see cannot love God whom he, he does not see. It says that in 1 John 4, 20. And that takes a lot of practice and, more importantly, a lot of grace. And I believe God will supply us with provision for that today if we ask him. So would you join me in praying one last time as we look to the Father? Lord, I pray that we would be of one heart, of one mind, with one Lord today. That we would learn to look past our differences and that we would see that the thing that unites us is far greater than anything that would divide us if we would simply keep our attention there. I pray you would help me to keep the main thing the main thing, and that I could stand before you knowing I've done my best. I pray that your word would cause growth in every single person here. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, if you've listened to me long, and if you haven't, uh, you'll learn soon that I am a very big history buff. I could spend days reading biographies and reading old letters and uh, um, watching the History Channel. I, just, I love history. It's a big part of my life. In all my exploration of history, I've noticed something that really holds true whether you're a Christian or not. It's universal across cultures and times, and it's this. People love to argue. They love to be right. Many of you spent too much time with family over Christmas this season, and you know that to be true. We love time splitting hairs and debating, and we debate over things like capitalism or socialism or country music or rap or Xbox or PlayStation. It doesn't matter whether it's a consequential matter or it's inconsequential. We inevitably split into our factions and tribes, and we like to fight. How many of you had a sibling like that? Yeah, my brother and I were that sibling. My parents got so tired of us one time, they literally put boxing gloves on us. And they said, from now on, if you want to fight, no more words. And uh, I mean, we were like that th my whole life. He, it started with him loving ketchup and me loving mustard. And from there, I went into our angsty teen years, and I loved cringy punk rock that would make you cringe, and he loved rap that would make your ears bleed. I mean, we were constantly at each other's throats. 
People are naturally inclined to have an inflated view of themselves and of their own opinions. And it happens in the history of Christianity just as often as anywhere else. According to the University of Houston, which was referenced in an article I was reading this week, here are a few debates that have happened in church history. I just plucked a couple out that I thought were funny. You ready for this? Number one, did Adam have a belly button? That was seriously debated. You've never thought about that, have you? Number two, should we literally handle snakes in church? No, the answer is no. Absolutely not. Snakes are disgusting. Number three, how many angels can dance on the end of a needle? Thank you, St. Thomas Aquinas, for thinking of this. And today, there are some who argue that, according to the Guardian News, you can reduce your time in purgatory by following the Pope on Twitter. There's a helpful tip for you. These are ridiculous things that have genuinely been debated. But today, I believe Romans 14 is going to help us cut past all the nonsense to the center of things, to the middle of it. The author, the Apostle Paul, is going to give us clarity about what hills are worth dying on and which we just ought to live in peace about. We can have unity, fellowship, brotherhood, love here in our church if we learn not just to obey the greatest commandment, to love the Lord, but to love one another as ourselves, which is a tremendously simple and yet difficult thing. So today, we're going to be in Romans 14. If you get nothing else out of today, I hope you hear this. The simple summary of this, don't try to be right, be helpful. Don't pursue freedom, pursue love. Don't try to be right, be helpful. Don't pursue freedom, pursue love. Let's read Romans 14 together. Whether you're here physically at home, you can follow along. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. You can read from whatever version you happen to like. There are many good versions. The original is the Greek, which unless you can read it, we're not going to read that here today. We read the ESV because it's my preferred favorite. Here we go. Romans 14. We're starting in verse 1. Romans 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand." One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord." So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother, or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another, but rather 
decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. May God give us understanding and growth from his word. Amen. I can think of no better passage for the average American and for the year of 2020, and it just happens that we're concluding the book of Romans on this chapter at the very end of the year. But if you've noticed, this year hasn't been a year where most of us could sing Kumbaya. Many of us have seen division, not just in our political realms with people tearing at each other on social media, but we've seen it in the church. I've been attacked. Others have been attacked. Many of you have been attacked. This has been a year of division. And I can think of no better passage that helps us keep our sights on the the right thing and keep the non-essentials out of view. Because I think we have a disease in our personal lives and in our corporate national life. And it is the disease of wanting to be right and free at the expense of others. And we may laugh at the silliness of debates gone by, and yet yesterday afternoon some of us went on equally absurd rants online. My hope for you is that in listening and understanding to the Apostle Paul in this passage, that you will make 2021 a more unifying year, and that we would unite around the right things and leave the differences of opinion we have to lie. It doesn't take a national poll to see that we've become less tolerant, less kind, and less patient with one another. Whether it's our kids, our spouse, our families, as much as our enemies online or on social media, or our sisters right here in the pews. The book of Ecclesiastes, however, has said it well. There is nothing new under the sun. Listen, the same squabbles you see today, magnified by our mediums of access and social media, existed in the early church just as well. The Roman church had their squabbles just like anyone else. Listen to verses 1 to 4 again. As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. 
Verse 1 in particular says, when someone who's weak in faith joins you, you ought to welcome him and not to debate with him. Let me translate that a little bit. When someone comes into the church or into your small group or into your personal life or into your group of friends with a wacky opinion, your job isn't to rush to correction. It's to welcome them, be hospitable to them, to show them affection and love that genuinely comes from the heart. The example given in this chapter is about meat and vegetables. And let me give some brief historical background here, because no, this is not about the modern plant-based debate, and if you should eat meat or you shouldn't eat meat, don't impose 21st century issues on first century problems, okay? I'm a vegetarian, I don't eat meat, it's not for moral reasons, and this is not dealing with that, okay? In first century Greco-Roman culture, there were some who thought that if you ate meat, you would be spiritually defiled. And the reason they believed this is because the majority of meat had been offered up to one pagan god or another, consecrated to them, and then sold in the marketplace. Really, the only way you could get meat was meat that had already been to a pagan temple. And these were probably Jewish Christians who thought that just like Daniel, that they were somehow more holy if they abstained from these foods and they looked down on non-Jewish Christians who had come into the faith. But Paul says, don't do that because God's welcomed that person. And the opposite was true. Those who were eating thought that those who didn't were superstitious and idiotic and said, you might as well eat. These new Gentile Christians just believe that meat is meat. They didn't care, so they just ate it. And Paul agrees with the person eating the meat. He didn't believe there was any actual spiritual impact of eating meat sacrificed to a pagan god. So he calls that person strong in faith and the one who abstains weak in faith. Listen, Jesus said this perfectly, and this is just uh, kind of a side point, but he said it perfectly. He says, greater is the one who lives in you than the one who lives in the world. Demons can't make their home in those who belong to Christ Jesus. John, or 1 John chapter 5, verse 18, the apostle John says that the devil is kept from even touching you by the Son of God. You can't be touched by demons. And though that is true, and we could push that on those weaker in faith in this scenario, that's not the point. Paul says that whether you eat or you refrain from eating, your job is not to pass judgment, but to love others by surrendering your rights, especially if you see yourself as strong. Even if it means you stop eating meat altogether for the one who's weak in faith, you do it. He addressed this issue also in the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13. He says, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again, lest I make my brother stumble. That's how far we should be willing to go in love. Instead of passing judgment on them because they do something or they don't do it, you should realize that if they're partaking or abstaining, if they're joining or refraining, and they're doing it with thanks to God, then God accepts them. Don't try to be right, be helpful. Don't pursue freedom, pursue love. And someone inevitably is going to say to me, well, why should my actions be restricted by others' opinions Am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is yes, you are. If you love Christ Jesus, indeed you are. And if your aim is to love instead of be uh, showing your own comforts and opinion, then yes, you are. 
Paul says that extreme accommodations are no burden for those who really love others. He instructs the young Timothy who's training to be a pastor in 1 Timothy, and he says the aim of our charge is love. He's saying the point of all of this is love. Love is what we are aiming at, Timothy. Because you can still be right, technically, about something and still be very wrong. You can be free and yet be a slave to your own passions and opinions. I like to shoot guns, and I know that's strange because I'm about as violent looking as a Labrador retriever puppy, and I'm like 120 pounds soaking wet. I, I don't look intimidating at all, but I've been shooting about as long as I've been reading and writing. My dad's been, uh, he's showed me how to shoot my entire life. Uh, Pastor Paul and, and I and others will sometimes go to the shooting range, and we went uh, recently. We'll also be going on a men's retreat in 2021 where we get to shoot a lot of guns and eat a lot of great food and hear a lot of great preaching. So we're looking forward to that. We didn't get to go this year, but hopefully we will next year. But about a week and a half ago, we went shooting, right? And I was shooting a bolt-action rifle from World War II that was basically a cannon on my arm and left a big bruise on me. And uh, when I'm shooting, what am I aiming at? The bullseye, right? Nobody shoots at a target and tries to hit the outside. When you're shooting a target, you're trying, well, unless you're a little kiddish like me, you might try to aim the thing that looks like a head, but you, most of us are aiming at the bullseye. We're not aiming at the outsides of a target. I want you to take a look at this target with me. It's what I call the love target, okay? It, there's something in the middle which are non-negotiables of our faith, things that are called absolutes, okay? These things are like the, the things that Scripture are real clear on, that Jesus is the Son of God, no adultery, no murder, love your brother and sister, all of these things. The Bible is absolutely, unequivocally clear on these things. On the outside of that is something that we call convictions, okay? These are important things, important topics that we should talk about, but they are things that Christians can have differences of opinion of and still be Christians, Okay, things included here might be baptism styles or how often you take communion or drinking or tattoos or what you view as entertainment or your end times prophecy opinion, your creation theory, or maybe even your political opinion and so on. And on the very outside is something we call preferences. Okay, these are non-consequential things that without proper discretion and wisdom can be made into a much bigger deal than they need to be and this really isn't where we get ourselves into trouble, believe it or not, in the preference area. I don't think anyone in this church or watching online is seriously debating things like uh, what color the, the, the drapes should be or whether following the Pope on Twitter really yields some heavenly reward, okay? These are just very obscure outside things. The area where we fall into sin in the way that we deal with one another is this area called convictions. We've seen this weaponized our entire year, haven't we? And my prayer is that next year is going to be better. But we have seen people take things that are important things, but they're not absolute things, and beat each other over the heads with them. When you stand up for your convictions, it can feel intoxicating. It can feel, feel like you're vindicating something, like you're the hero. And we step on the people's heads that we say we love in order to get up to our lofty ideals. We trample those very same people God is saying are the point for the sake of some principle or another. And the problem is that we're aiming at the wrong thing. 
The Bible talks a lot about freedom, for example, but it never tells you to chase it and seek it. Instead, it says, seek to love and you'll find the freedom you desire. No political body can guarantee us freedom, and we are not told to chase it. Instead, those who are in bonds are told, be bondsmen of the Lord and you'll be really free. You see, maybe you're missing the target because you're not aiming at the right part of it. Maybe the conflicts in your life and in your family and in your relationships, or maybe even here in your church family, are simply a result of you aiming at the outside instead of aiming for the absolutes, instead of keeping the main thing the main thing. Because, I don't know if anybody's ever told you this, but I hope you hear it from me, people are not beholden to you. They are not responsible to you. Verse 4 says, who are you? to pass judgment on the servant of another. It is before their own master they will stand or fall, and the Lord will make them stand. Maybe you lack peace in your relationships because your convictions exclude kindness, and you crusade against behavior instead of campaigning for the individual. Jesus said to the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. And sometimes we think we are God's enforcers in our relationships, our friendships, our marriages, and even in the hallowed halls of Facebook. But you are no one's master. We are all the servant of one. And ultimately, no one owes you an account. They'll give it to God alone. Verse 12 says, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. If someone is joining something or refraining from something, it is not our job to assume what their intentions are, Even if they're acting in good conscience, doing their level best to please God, God may accept two different people who have done two very opposite things. Now, a word of caution here. I am not referring to the things that this love target in the Bible would call absolutes. Listen, nobody commits adultery in good conscience. Okay, that's faithlessness. God can forgive that, and he will forgive that, but we can't come to him pretending it was just a difference of opinion. Nobody commits murder in good conscience. No one denies the lordship of the Son of God in good conscience. There are areas God says are not up for debate. It doesn't matter where you land. These things are true. They make a Christian a Christian. You know, once I heard somebody say to me, Well, you can't tell me what makes me a Christian. I'm a Christian. You can't tell me if I'm a Christian or not. I'm like, yeah, no, that's not true. Let's say you say you're a member of the Green Party in the United States, but you invest only in big coal and you drive a Hummer. Are you a very good member of the Green Party? No. There are certain things that make us Christians and certain things that exclude us from being so. But what I'm talking about here are the areas of life that are not that clear. God allows us room to grow and room to differ in these areas, and that is the secret sauce of unity. And I see a lot of it in this church. I mean, if you look around, you see people from all backgrounds, all sorts of different countries, all sorts of different belief systems, but the things holding us together are stronger than the things dividing us. Because you can hold a difference of conviction, I've seen it, and still regard one another highly. 
I've seen people on our very church board that might vote very different ways, but they can still hold Jesus up as the center, and they can still hold one another up in love and call each other brother and sister. You see, some of you have even surrendered your own rights so that others wouldn't stumble. And this gray area, this thing that's not just in black and white, this area of conviction also helps our relationships with one another and with God to be more family-like. I don't know about you, but my dad never came up to me and handed me a contract and said, here's what you do, and here's what you do not do in every single area of life if you want to be a part of my family. No, he instilled in me a set of principles that helped me navigate unique challenges in a way that he would be honored by. He, he, he's glad my last name is attached to him because of the principles he instilled in me. You see, one of the signs, the major signs of a cult, is that they have a rule for everything. Because their faith is about control and not living with God. God purposefully doesn't give you a rule for everything because life is meant to be lived and not prescribed. Life is meant to be experienced with God and not acted out like some predetermined play, and not everyone's life is meant to be exactly the same. Tolerance gets a bad rap in Christian circles, but when properly applied, tolerance can change a life. It can be the foyer that welcomes someone into God's living room. Love for God and love for one another can be accomplished with the proper application of tolerance. You see, tolerance is not the be-all to end-all. It's not everything, and we're not simply tolerating one another, but it does start a relationship, and God has a proper place for it. Don't try to be right. Be helpful. Don't chase your freedoms. Chase love. And don't be so caught up on your own convictions that you discourage and drive away the one that God wants to bring near. Not only can we get caught up in our convictions, but we can get caught up in our own freedoms as well. I used to have a, uh, a drinking problem, and it was my way of dealing with inner turmoil and dread and guilt and anxiety. I would wash it down with friends and parties and alcohol and laughter. It was my own form of teenage escapism. And when I became a Christian for the first month or two, I stopped drinking. I was in college at the time, so most of my friends did drink. And uh, one evening, it was maybe like two months after I became a Christian, I went out to a, a party with some friends. I was convinced I could have a beer or two and I'd be fine. I was conflicted, but I did it anyway. And that night, I blacked out, lost control, and I don't remember any of it. I felt like I had failed God and that he had rejected me for turning my back on him. And it took me a while to realize, but I cannot drink alcohol. My grandfather struggled his whole life with a heavy addiction to this. It's been in my family for generations. I knew I was out of control and that I couldn't handle it. So I stopped, and I asked for God's help in doing so. Now it's been nine years since I've had a drink. And I don't say this to shame those who do drink or to suggest that I am more devout than those who do. Not the case. You see, it would be easy for me as the weaker brother, in this case, to judge those who do. Like verse uh, 3 says, Paul tells us, let not the one who abstains 
pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. I hope, however, I can save you a lot of grief by saying this today. Some of you are doing things you know you can't do. Other people can do them, and it's fine. But for you, it has become sin. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so close, and let us run with endurance the race that we have set before us. You see, some of you have some weights, and they may not be sin, but they're holding you down, and they have become sin for you. Some of you can't watch a moderate amount of TV or play a moderate amount of video games. They take over everything. Some of you, you, you can't online shop in moderation. You cannot do it. And you need to start going physically to a place and watching cash leave your hand because you're out of control. You see, there are areas in each of our lives, and I could sit here and list them all day, that have taken mastery in place of Jesus. And they may not be sins, and you say, well, this isn't a sin. But it may be a weight for you reaching your fullest potential that God has for you. Anything that you have doubts in your heart about, that hold you back from Jesus, even if it's not sin, for you, it is. Listen to verses 20 to 23. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Indeed, everything is clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good to not eat meat or drink wine or do anything that will cause your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Some of you are dancing as close to the line of sin as you can, and you're asking yourself, how close can I get to this line before it is actually sin? And I know it, I've been there, I've done it myself, and I'm saying to you that the question in your heart is all wrong. God wants to put a different question there. He wants you to be asking the question, how can I please my Father and love others best? Because you see, the cultic believer, the legalist, the one who is after behavior instead of God, will say, how far can I get from that line? And they don't realize they're going to fall off a cliff on this end by looking at that line. The question you have to ask yourself is, how can I best please my Father and love others? Because it's not how far you are from the line, it's how close you are to the Father. God wants you to have a clear conscience, and not just in your dealings with others, but in your own conduct. Are you at peace with yourself? Are you at peace with the areas of your life that the Bible is not specific on? Because grace starts on the majors, but it spreads out to every other area, just like the book of Romans. The resurrection in your life starts with the majors, the major absolutes that you have to repent of. But resurrection raises every part of your life from the dead, not just the ones you think are seemingly important. Are you working your job in faith? Is the way you talk to your family exhibiting faith? Are you relaxing and taking recreation in a way that Paul would say proceeds from faith? Because we all have weak areas, weights, 
that we need God's help with and the gentle consideration of our brothers and sisters while we work it out. We do not survive in this race without each other's patient love, nor without our own clear conscience. Don't chase your liberties, pursue people. Don't try to be right, be helpful, and don't pursue freedom, but pursue love. Because ultimate freedom will not be found in doing whatever you want. It's in doing what you were meant to do with all of your heart. We were meant for each other, and we cannot survive without each other. And I hope that we learn this in this coming year, not just as a church, but as a nation. Because your sister's victory is your victory. And your brother's triumph is your triumph. And the opposite is also true. Any freedom gained at the expense of another's conscience or at the expense of another's freedom is nothing to celebrate. I'll invite uh, the team back up at this time. Uh, Years ago in England, there was a clergyman by the name of John Donne, and he was forced into the clergy by his family. And in this particular church at the time, it was forbidden to marry. And John Donne was a very lonely, lonely individual. He hated what he did, because his occupation could be, and still can be today, a very lonely profession. After suffering for years, he just quit the ministry, moved on, and married a woman named Anne Moore, and they had 12 children together. He ended up joining the Anglican Church, where marriage was legal for a man like him, and he became a member of the English Parliament. But years later, after reflecting on all that time in isolation and loneliness as a church cleric, he was inspired to write a few words of poetry which I'm sure most of you will recognize and just didn't know where it came from. He wrote this, No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is the piece of a continent, a part of the main. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. In just a moment, we'll be taking communion to remember the Lord's death and the unity we now share at the price of blood. If you didn't get one of these, just keep your hand in the air and the ushers will get them to you. If you're joining us at home, just because you don't have the elements in hand does not mean you don't have the faith in your heart. These are representations of an inner faith, not the requisite for us to approach God. As we take this, I want you to listen to verses 7 to 9 of Romans 14. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. He is the Lord of all of us. Differences of convictions aside, he binds us together. And that means that I need every one of you. You need each other. And I need you. You need me. We are symbiotic. And we are the most whole and the most like Christ when we are together in unity, aiming and focused on the right things. 
when we treat one another not just with respect and toleration, but when we sacrifice for one another in love, when we give what we shouldn't have to and surrender rights in order that somebody else could grow. That's Jesus-like. Because none of us are an island, and we've been united at a heavy cost. And that bond is more powerful than anything else in the universe and is the very love that we are aiming at. If you have faith in it, whether at home or here, in a moment of reflection, we're going to take part in this body and this blood. We're going to sing together as one. And then my prayer, my hope for you is that you would go and act in love as one. And you would learn to lay aside your convictions for the betterment of your fellow sister and brother. For whatever our disagreements on this, we are of one mind. That Christ is Lord of all who have faith in him and we are his hands extended to the world so that they too can receive the right to become children of God. And my hope for our new year, for 2021, is that not just as a nation, but that we would keep our eyes right in front of us here in our local church and that we would learn what it means to set aside non-essentials keep the main thing the main thing. That we'd have a new year free of backbiting, full of support, understanding, tolerance, and sacrificial love for one another. That this would no longer be about that tribe, this party, these people who think this way. We all need the same thing, and that is God in a heart that is void without it. Whatever our country looks like, I hope that we as this church can show a better way in our individual lives, our family life, our church life, our community life. May we show Christ as the better way forward to a dark and dying world. And may we fulfill the words of Jesus. In John chapter 13, verse 35, at the last dinner he's ever having with his disciples, he says this to them, do you know how the world's going to know you're my disciple? By the love that you have for each other. Anybody can stand up and say profound philosophical things or religiously inspiring things. Problem is that they don't love. With Christ in our hearts, we cannot help but to love those who are unlovable otherwise. So, let's open this first tab. And if you're at home, just reflect with us as we take this. I want you to take that body and see that it's whole and it was made whole because Christ's body was broken. We can be one because he was torn piece by piece and his body was broken so that this body, plural, could be made one. That's incredible love and that's the love we remember. So Father, we thank you for your son, gladly given, gladly broken, you said in Isaiah 53, it pleased the Lord to crush him. Why? So that we would be made whole. Thank you that you've given of yourself, Lord, for those who did not deserve it. I pray that you would help us to love those we view as our enemies, that they might become our brothers by this broken body. Let's partake. In the same way, he took the covenant covenant in blood. He raised his cup. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood which is given for you. Drink all of you of it. We are united 
by something much stronger than the blood of our ancestors, than the blood our wars have fought, than all the blood spilled for all the causes in all the world, the blood that now runs through your veins and my veins is united by the Son of God. And we are one family. So when you look at a person, don't see them as an enemy, don't see them as an obstacle, and do not see them as someone who stands in your way. Rather, see them as someone who has yet to be given the right to be called a child of God, and you are there so that they could receive it. Maybe, whether you're here in person or you're watching online, you've never received it. This is the new covenant, the new blood that's given for you so that you can be forgiven and made whole, so that you can be welcomed into the family of God, and you can be loved before you get it all right. So we take blood in remembrance of Him. Lord, thank you that you spilled your blood. You said while we were still your enemies, you died for us. I pray that you would unite us now, not just as friends, but as family, by the power of your blood. We ask it in Christ's name. Let's take the blood. Let's sing to our Father one last time together as brothers and as sisters.